First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles, so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. My aim this morning in the minutes that we spend together in this message before we come to the Lord's table is to inspire you to look at your job, your secular job, the way you would look at it if the Lord called you to perform that job, that very job, as a tent maker in another culture among an unreached people. Now, for some of you, um, the term tent maker may not be a familiar technical phrase. So let me put it in a, a biblical context for you. You remember that the Apostle Paul traveled through the Roman and the Greek world. He was preaching the gospel. He was planting churches. And uh, some churches just voluntarily gave him money like the church at Philippi, several times right after he had left that church. Sometimes he very rarely asks a church to support his ministry, like when he wrote to the church in Rome and asked for their help going to Spain. And he taught very explicitly he thought it was right for a church to pay the salary of Christian workers like missionaries and pastors and so on. But, Almost right across the board, he refused to take money from churches for his apostolic ministry. Instead, what he said was this. This is what he wrote to the Thessalonians. You remember our labor and toil, brethren? We worked night and day that we might not burden any of you while we preached to you the gospel. Well, you might ask then, well, what did he do? When he worked, what did he do to make money so that he could support himself and wouldn't have to have the Christians pay his salary? And the answer is given in Acts 18.3. It says that he moved in with Aquila and Priscilla because they had the same vocation, namely tent making. So he evidently was a skilled craftsman or artisan who could sew together and cut uh, animal hide tents, repair them probably, and, and make them from scratch. So in a sense, you could say that the little band of uh, 
preachers who went around establishing churches were also a band of merchants who uh, worked in the evenings, perhaps, uh, hard on their tents, uh, sold them at markets, and then as much as free time as they could buy, they preached, and they taught Christians, and they planted churches. And when they ran out of money, they made some more tents or got some more business and worked. So a tent maker, as we use it today then, is a person who takes their uh, secular vocation or skill and uh, crosses a culture, usually, takes that job in a country that is often closed to the gospel and performs that vocation with the larger vision of making Christ known in that place. A tent maker is a person who has set his eyes on the things of eternity, not on the things of the world. So that money-making through your job, climbing the ladder of responsibility in your job, and becoming well-known and influential in your job, for a tent maker are at best very secondary means to the end of making Christ known, especially among unreached peoples. For example, take the country of Oman. I saw people shake their heads when I said, if you knew where that was, my guess is most of us don't know where Oman is. Oman is right at the tip of the Persian Gulf. Very strategic location. It's a small country, 1.2 million people. Oman has 40 Christians in it, according to Patrick Johnstone. 40 indigenous Christians in two small Arabic-speaking groups. I received a letter in July from Ruth Siemens, who is the director of Global Opportunities in Pasadena, responsible for positioning people who have secular skills in countries like this. She said that 12 years ago, Oman had a law that made it against the law to wear glasses. That's how anti-Western Oman was 12 years ago. There's a new younger leader today, and things are changing radically. I want to read you the paragraph that just stuck so firmly in my imagination as I thought about Bethlehem when I read this letter. I write because we have more than 1,100 current well-paying openings in Oman to be filled by this autumn and next spring. We would be excited if there were just ten. God has not only set before us an open door, but a gate. He has made a wide breach in the wall. We must believe this is God's moment for Christians to enter the country with the gospel. At the end of her letter, she put a P.S. P.S. We also have six well-paying English teaching jobs that can put Christians among south-central USSR peoples like the Kazakhs, Kyrgyzs, Turkmens, Tajiks, and Uzbeks. Imagine, she said. <laughs> now, Oman has an official state religion of Ibadi Islam, and you can't get in there as a missionary. 
And there are 1,100 jobs available to Christians in that country. I believe one of the goals that God will give us as a church for the next decade, up to the year 2000, is alongside all of the vocational missionaries that are rising up, and my goal is still to have 10% of our congregation in vocational missions, to have just as big a number taking three-year or six-year stints in closed countries doing your secular vocation as tent makers. Why? Ninety by ninety is over. It's history. God honored that goal two years early. Why, for the next decade, ought this particular goal to be a part of our missionary vision? Four reasons. Number one, the opportunities are indescribably great. Almost unspeakable what's happening in some closed countries. Second, the cost of sending vocational missionaries is skyrocketing because of inflation overseas. Third, 60% today at least of the unreached peoples are behind politically closed doors. China, almost the whole Muslim world and almost the whole Hindu world. The three big places left. And fourth, modeling what it means to be a Christian in a workplace is crucial in the evangelistic enterprise. It's one thing to be a foreign missionary and say, become a Christian. It's another thing to be there living out what it means to be a Christian in a secular vocation. For those four reasons, I think it has to be high on our priority list alongside vocational missions. It's not an easy life. I don't want to create any rosy picture this morning that, oh, groovy, let's just take off for a three or six year stint overseas and have some fun and then come back and our missionary duty's over. It would not be easy to be a tent-making missionary if you took your calling seriously. It would require training on this side. It would require incredible rededication day after day under the pressures of a vocation in a foreign culture under scrutiny, which would not be easy. Put in relation to that, Satan would hate your going and would mount all his efforts to ruin your life, your family, and your ministry. So we're not talking about vacations here. We're talking wartime strategy. And it's not for everybody. But I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit and because the one who loved us enough to die for us by crucifixion is so great that it's possible. I was just reading day before yesterday in my volume on the 18th century, Inextinguishable Blaze by Skevington Wood, the chapter on the Moravian mission to England, to read of the dedication of those Moravians in this kind of ministry made my heart beat fast. There was a time when the Moravians, these are the people that came from Count Zinzendorf's Herrenhut over in Germany, over to England. They had communities around southern England and the northern part of England 
was just as pagan and barren as any land could be, and some people called for the Moravians to help. Well, you know what they did? They had a big congregational gathering, and they prayed. And God set apart 26 Moravians, and they moved and worked there, and the whole area was changed. I believe that's what ought to be happening. I just think there ought to be massive moving in this church, in and out of this country, in and out of this church, through this city, and all over this world, in and out, so that there's a world mindset and strategic thinking all the time going on here at Bethlehem. So let's be a training place, a place of dedication, and let's sin. And when we sin, we simply must be so radically committed to the kind of praying and the kind of inspirational communication that will not let our people fail overseas. Now, why am I saying all this? This isn't Missions Week. I'm saying it because it's Labor Day weekend. And I want to talk about making a connection in your mind that the Lord has been making in my mind, namely, the connection between tent making and Minneapolis. I just can't get out of my mind that we ought to all be thinking of our lives in terms of tent making if we're not professional Christian workers like pastors. What possible reason could there be not to think of your job in terms of tent making in Minneapolis? There are over a thousand churches in Minneapolis. Let's estimate 1,500 churches in the greater metropolitan area of the Twin Cities, just to put it at the high end so we don't put anything out of whack here. Let's estimate that 300 on the average are in one of those churches on every weekend. Now, that's high. Even though this, this church is, is a larger church, that's high because the vast majority of those churches are small, smaller than 300. So, if you put all that together, you get 450,000 people in a church on a weekend in Minneapolis. Now, the, the population of the greater Twin Cities is about 2.2 million people. Now, what does that mean then? What that means is that on any given weekend, 1,550,000 or 77% of the population are not in church. Now, of those people, some are Christian. Because for one reason or another, they're just not here. They might be sick. They might not uh, belong to any institutional church, go to house church or something. Uh, but, on the other hand, people in church, many of those are not Christians. So you got some Christians out, you got some non-Christians in. I think they probably wash. So I think it's probably a, a fair estimate in the Twin Cities that 77% of the population in this area are lost. They're lost. They're going to hell. And they work with you. If you were to ask me then, what is God's strategy for reaching the 1.5 million lost and perishing people in these cities, I would say his number one strategy is tent making. Now, let's base that on that being the normal biblical pattern in First Peter and other parts of the Bible. His strategy is tent-making. Now, what do I have in mind then? When I talk about your job being conceived in your mind and in your heart as a tent-making mission to this city 
and your workplace. I have in mind more than witnessing at lunchtime about the gospel, though that is utterly crucial. Let me mention five things I have in mind. Five ways that you, if you conceive of your job as a tent-making mission, five ways to make God known where you work. Number one, the excellence of the products or services that you render will show the excellence and greatness of your God. The excellence of the service or product that you render. Second, the standards of integrity that guide your life in the office or in the workplace show His integrity and His holiness. Third, the love that you show to people will show His love. So the relationships formed at work and through work are opportunities of lived out love and they show the love of God. Fourth, how you spend your salary shows how much value God has in your heart compared to other things that you might spend your money on. And fifth, the verbal testimony that you give shows that the doorway to your salvation and, and theirs is open to everybody around. Now, all of those are important. If you try to pick one of those and say, my testimony is to be excellent and leave out all the rest, whether you're loving in your attitudes, whether you have standards of integrity, whether you bear verbal witness, you will not make a dent through your excellence for Jesus Christ. There must be the whole spectrum of testimony. Also, if you bear witness with your mouth over lunch and do shabby work, you'll get nowhere for Christ. It's the whole thing. We testify as as tent-making missionaries by the totality of our labor, our life, and our work where we are. And I believe if the Twin Cities is going to be evangelized, it's going to be mainly through tent-makers. That is mainly through you. And this is going to require rethinking for some of you about why you are here on this planet. You see, if, if you answer the question, why do you work where you work? Why are you a doctor or a lawyer or a counselor or a teacher or a painter or a carpenter or a housewife or, or, or? Why are you this? If you say, well, to make money so that I can clothe myself and eat and send my kids to school and have a vacation. Uh, that's godless. It's godless. If that's all the answer you give, if that's the way you think about your vocation, I work here to make money, to eat and have a house and clothes and leisure. That's why I've got this job. You have no different reason than godless people have. It's a godless reason. Not, not a wrong reason. If you go beyond it, and add God to it, it ceases to be Godless. But short of having God as your goal, of wanting to make God known, display God's character, then you just live like the world and have no difference at all. So what I want to do this morning in the few minutes we have left is provide three 
foundation stones for your tent-making mission in Minneapolis. And they come from 1 Peter chapter 2. The first one is this. You as believers are God's chosen people. Let's read verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Then drop down to verse 10. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That verse 10 there is the reason I think this book is written to Gentiles like you and me rather than Jews. It says, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. But notice, once the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom, words are used to describe them which once belonged only to Israel. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. That's you and me this morning as believers. We belong to a holy nation. A royal priesthood. We are God's people. So the first foundation stone of your tent making is that something overwhelming has happened to you from God. Something supernatural has come into your life. God has opened the eyes of your heart. You have seen the all-sufficiency of Christ to atone for sin and give you purpose for life and a hope for eternity. You've reached out the arms of faith and embraced Him as Lord and Savior, and you're on a path toward obedience. That is awesome. That's the foundation stone of tent making. If you don't have the awesome sense that something supernatural and overwhelming has happened to you, little itsy-bitsy nobody you, so that you're overwhelmed at God's grace to take heed of you, you won't change any workplace. Nobody will know that you are even a Christian if you aren't overwhelmed that you're a Christian. That's foundation stone number one. You belong to the people of God. Foundation stone number two is you are aliens and exiles in this world. In Oman, 15% of the population is aliens. They come from Iran, Pakistan, India, Britain, the U.S. They're not citizens of Oman. They just work there. They feel not quite at home with the customs, but they submit up to a point to the expectations of the government in their workplace. That is exactly the scene that First Peter describes of believers in this fallen world. We are aliens and exiles. We are not citizens of this planet. Rather, we are citizens of heaven. It's stated three times in this letter. Let me show it to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse of the letter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles, there's the word, of the dispersion. Now that once referred only to the Jews scattered outside Palestine, but now we've seen that the Gentiles have been drawn into the people of God, so that this is referring here to Christians scattered outside the homeland of heaven. On the earth we are exiles. Chapter 1, verse 17. If you invoke as Father him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which means 
throughout the time of your stay on the earth until you meet the judge in the last day. You are in exile, a refugee. Finally, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Now, this verse gets at the practical meaning of being an exile, doesn't it? Practically, what this verse says is, there are forces in this world that want your soul. Your soul belongs to God as a believer. He died to purchase you. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6. Your soul belongs to God, but in this world, Satan and the forces of the world want your soul. They are at war to take captive your soul, and if they can get it, they will destroy it. And so this verse teaches the most vulnerable people to that destruction are whom? People who are at home here. People who never think in terms of exile or alien status. People who watch television and feel at home with what they see. Who look at the newspaper ads and feel at home with what they see. Who listen to the music on the radio and feel at home with what they hear. They are the vulnerable ones. The doors are already open. The gates are down. The soldiers are charging into the castle. The soul is being surrounded. The only people who will survive the attempt of Satan in the world to capture and destroy the soul are people who feel their exile status and live consciously in it. So the first two foundation stones of, of tent making are, one, you belong to God and are his child, belong to his people. Something awesome has happened to you. And second, therefore, belonging to God, you are an alien and an exile on planet Earth. Not, to tie this in with last week, not, not that you are alien to myrtles, alien to mountains, aliens to hills, aliens to cypresses and hickories and oceans, clouds, rain, flowers but that you are alien to what sin has done to this world system and this world order. The prince of the power of the air is the god of this age. And this world runs on his principles. Therefore, we are aliens here. This world will one day be liberated of everything about it that makes us aliens and then this will be our Father's world, as it ought to be. Last foundation stone is this. God wants you here, there, with different goals than the world. He wants you in your secular employment with different goals. First Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people... 
And then here's the goal. That you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you have been chosen out of the world to be gods and sent back into the world as aliens and exiles. Namely, to make known the wonderful deeds of God. And isn't it precious and helpful and encouraging that this verse right here says the number one content of your testimony will not be a theological list of deeds God did once upon a time in the Bible. What does it say? You'll declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The number one deed of God that you bear witness to in the secular workplace is what God did for you to bring you from darkness to light. And then you branch out from there to the other deeds God has done in history. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, here comes the goal that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, the aim of your work is to live and work in such a way that when people see you, sooner or later, and we pray sooner, but sooner or later they are going to confess God was real in that person's life and God was glorious. So let me sum up what we've seen as far as a a biblical basis for viewing your work as tent making in Minneapolis. The biblical basis is threefold in what I've said. One, you are all, through faith, God's people. Second, because you have been taken out for God, you are sent back as aliens and exiles. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3. This world order and world system and way of doing things is foreign to us. And third, we ought to stay where we are and have different goals in our workplaces. The excellence of our products or services, the standards of our integrity, the love we have for our fellow work people, the way we spend our salary, the words we use to share the gospel, all of those are the fabric that we hold up, kind of the mosaic or the quilt of God's glory before the people with whom we work. And so I urge you to seriously pray and consider whether you need to rethink why you have the job you have and what in the few years you have on this planet before you meet the judge You aim to accomplish for God through your calling, your secular vocation. And as we move to the Lord's table, I'm just going to ask that you bow your head and deal with God about this and rededicate yourself to this great cause.